0: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to part two of a special two-part podcast series I did with Mike Volkoff looking at the year 2022 in review for FCPA and compliance issues. In this part two, we consider building trust and credibility in the investigative process, the ABB Enforcement Action, the Honeywell FCPA Enforcement Action. We ask, Why is the heat on compliance after the Monaco memo? We look at corporate incentives and discipline, including clawbacks, and the Glencore FCPA enforcement action, and the issue of CCO certification. If you didn't get the chance to listen to part one, I hope you'll go back and listen to that as well. This is Tom Fox. Thank you so much for listening to this special
1: two-part episode. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. I always like to bring in the new year with my good friend, colleague, esteemed practitioner in the legal area, my good friend Tom Fox. Tom, thanks for joining me today for a discussion of last year, but everybody looks forward to your views, your sort of perspective here. So thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Mike. And, Tom, I think we were going to look back on – 2022 in the FCPA, enforcement and compliance issues, and just to tee it up a little bit, I always like to do this review. I think it's good to have a good measure, and I think you and I have recorded several of these over the years. Let's go on. We, you did mention, Tom, the, and I will turn this over to you again, but to me, my big question to you is this. ABB pays $315 million. In 2001, They pled guilty to bid rigging, an antitrust violation in Egypt. 2004, bribery, guilty plea in Nigeria under the FCPA. 2010, they get a DPA for FCPA violations in Mexico and Iraq. And all of a sudden, we have this case where they supposedly paid bribes in South Africa and a three-time loser, which I don't think we've ever seen before, pays $315 million. And you and I spoke right after this case came out, and the question we both asked ourselves before we even read anything, was this the right resolution? And we both went into it to read it and give DOJ its fair shake here in terms of what was done, and did they explain their reasons for it? Was it justified? And so where did you come out? on that and also what did you think of the case?
0: I term the AFCPA enforcement action as one of the biggest wins for compliance we've had in some time. Everything you said around this case is absolutely correct. Three hundred and fifteen million fine, seventy-five million going to the SEC, two subsidiaries pleading guilty, the DOJ crediting a payment of one hundred and forty two million South Africa, extraordinary cooperation, extensive remediation, a voluntary disclosure that I'll go into in some detail, coupled with three-time loser. AB had a broken culture, and they were the first three-time FCPA violator. And AB made the decision that we are going to change our culture. We are going to never have to go through this again because this is not on the regulators. This is not on the Department of Justice. This is our problem and we have to fix it. And they made clear to the Department of Justice from as early as an attempted self-disclosure that they were going to do that. And I want to go into that in a little bit of detail because the DOJ spent a lot of time talking about the putative self-disclosure. So, Apparently, ABB calls up, and you've done this, Mike, I know. We'd like to come in and talk. And they scheduled an appointment. Between the time of that phone call and that appointment, South African press broke the story of ABB uh, engaging in bribery and corruption. And so the DOJ said properly, you did not meet the definition of self-disclosure. And so we cannot give you self-disclosure credit. But... The DOJ was so impressed with the effort of ABB, and I don't mean Tom and Mike coming in and saying, yeah, we really meant to do this. They documented that effort. We don't know what that documentation was, but the DOJ specifically said they documented how they were going to come in, what they were going to say, and how they were unaware of this press report. So I get to say document, even when Great, it comes yeah. to self-screwing. You knew yeah, i know. get that it's in there. Greatest hits. But, greatest hits. But, greatest hit. But the point, Mike, is, enough. something I've heard you say over the years, the biggest thing you have when you go into the DOJ is your credibility. And use that credibility to build trust. Trust that you are engaging in an investigation along the parameters that we now understand the DOJ wants. Engaged in trust that the documents are tied down. Engaged in trust when you relay a fact That fact is correct, or it's based upon the best knowledge you had at the time, and you continue to communicate with the Department of Justice. You turn over relevant documents. You report relevant findings of your investigation, and during this entire time that you're investigating, you're remediating extensively, and AB did both. We don't know exactly the level of cooperation to the DOJ. There was one line in the SEC order that basically said uh, ABB was turning over documents as they became aware of them. That is the hot doc we heard from Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, and Kenneth Polite and Ms. Milner, Miller and all of their speeches around the Monaco doctrine. If you get a document, turn it over to us. That should be your first thought and your first action. And apparently that's what happened. So we really had a level of truly extraordinary cooperation and remediation that I don't want to say impressed the Department of Justice, but built a level of trust that allowed the Department of Justice to come to some of the conclusions they had. And that's ABB. That's not the Department of Justice selling out. That's not the Department of Justice saying we said we were going to be really hard on you and stern. This is AB making really going beyond beyond the pale and as well in their remediation. This allowed AB not to be required to have a monitor because they did put a new program in and they did test that program. And they agreed to an extraordinary reporting protocol to the department with quarterly meetings on a three-year rolling basis of the updates to their compliance program. So ABB was able to build a level of trust. They were able to maintain that level of trust. And the one thing I want to make clear about the DOJ in this process, Mike, is they communicated all of that through the settlement documents. This wasn't Kenneth Belede or or Deputy Attorney General Monaco standing up and saying, here's what they did. This is in the settlement documents. And I want to acknowledge and shout out to the Department of Justice, for putting that level of detail so that we could understand how starting with the question of this is a three-time FCPA violator, we have the Monaco Doctrine in front of us, please help us understand. Well, they did help us understand. And I thought they threaded a very narrow needle hole, and they did it well. But ABB should also be congratulated or at least acknowledged for their role in attempting to self-disclose in communicating on an extensively cooperating with the department on the investigation and with their remediation program. They do have to certify, the CCO, Natalia Shaheda has to certify the compliance program. But just an extraordinary result, given the facts, and we didn't even go to the facts about this bribery scheme literally went to the corporate office in Switzerland, although part of it was headquartered in South Africa. This was run out of the corporate office. So you had culture of corruption all the way to the home office. And ABB made the decision, we are going to change. And they made a decision and enacted that decision in a way that they could demonstrate and document to the Department of Justice.
1: Yeah, I stated, Tom, and I think we both went into this with a jaded eye. But I think A's handling of it and ABB's response was... Truly extraordinary, and you can see that. And uh, so, in the end, I thought it was it was a fair resolution. And I think that ABB did. It. They knew once they uncovered this that they had to do something extraordinary, and their attorneys and them did it. And it's not every day that we say, "Oh, they did well with a three hundred fifteen million dollars." That's a pretty big number but in also these reporting requirements and also being held accountable going forward with the reporting requirements. A couple of points that I just wanted to make on the facts itself, there were a couple of good reminders, again, Tom, on some of our favorite issues. Here, and I won't go into all the details, but they were dealing with the state-owned electric company, and it had to do with a contract, valuable control and instrumentation work contract. But what's the first thing that we learned early on was – don't hire a third party who's recommended uh, or at the direction of a state-owned or executive. Here, the executive who was the head of ESCOM is the subcontractor as a friend and somebody who would be interesting for ABB to engage. And ABB hired that person even though that person didn't have experience or qualifications. They also ended up hiring another subcontractor at the behest of ESCOM and the ESCOM official. And ultimately, the only way they could get that person through their ABB's due diligence process was to waive the due diligence requirement. And again, in the new ABB with a culture of compliance, neither of these situations would pass the smell test. We've always told clients, if somebody's recommended by a state-owned official, that's like the kiss of death. Um, so those were two other important points. But all in all, Tom, I think you perfectly pressed answered the big question that a lot of people have been debating. I think a little bit about whether AB in the end was a prop, uh, really the right type of resolution. So we finished the year off with another big bang case, Tom, and this this was the Honeywell UOP case where Honeywell ended up paying $160 million to DOJ and the SEC and $39 million to Brazil. It's interesting that we've seen so many cases where there's great cooperation. I always tell clients, if you operate in Brazil, be scared because the law enforcement relationship between DOJ and Brazil is second to none in the world, maybe the equivalent of the U.K., But Honeywell, in this case, got a three-year DPA, but they got no independent compliance monitor. They paid bribes to a Petrobras uh, official, one official who had the decision-making responsibility for a large contract, $348 million contract, to build a Brazil refinery. The SEC case included not only the Brazil situation, but the situation in Algeria in 2011, where bribes were paid to sonatrack the oil and gas, the state-owned company in Algeria to resolve a contract dispute. But what was interesting to me was, Tom, this underscored when you have these big projects and they're worth a lot of money, it's so valuable. Honeywell was competing against its two most major competitors, and they wanted to win at any cost. And I think that culture permeated exactly how it was executed but what were your thoughts in terms of how the Honeywell case came out?
0: Like this case, Honeywell did not self-disclose. <laughs> the case came to the DOJ through UNO Oil. And we've talked about the two you know, former UNO oil officers who are cooperating with the Department of Justice. But in the UNOL case, UNO was only involved in Sonatrack or the Algerian bribes. We're kind of speculating here, but I think Honeywell was put on notice, started to look at the Algerian operation and then picked up what happened in Brazil. The Eno Oil case continues to resonate. I don't know how long those guys are going to be turning over information, but maybe quite a while. So if you did business with Eno Oil, you better be out there auditing your deals. Number one. Number two, the bribery scheme interested me, Mike, because it was a profit-sharing bribery scheme in Brazil. And the payments to the corrupt Brazilian Petrobras employee were a percentage of the overall contract. And it was capped. So you even had a little cap kicker in there. Very important to have a cap. You don't want to exceed. Give too much of a percentage. But my theme for this case was profit sharing as bribery. And then the troubling thing from the Honeywell perspective was... As bad as this case was in terms of the business unit lying to the compliance professionals or the compliance function, there was also a complete failure of internal controls when it came to finance and accounts payable because the Brazilian intermediaries who were involved in this case, who also shared in the profits of the contract, didn't have contracts. They didn't have written contracts, and they had wires sent to different company names than their companies. And you may guess where those wires were sent to offshore accounts and to Swiss bank accounts. So you had a failure of finance and accounts payable internal controls as well. So this brought Honeywell corporate, or at least not a Honeywell company brought their U S subsidiary in directly into the bribery scheme because of the payments. And it reminds us that internal controls are not simply Due diligence, distributors, etc. It's it goes down to your payments scan, schemes and how you pay your vendors should all be a part of your internal controls. One question I had, Mike, that I don't know if you would know the answer to this, but Honeywell, as you noted, Honeywell did not was not required to have a monitor. And here I could not discern from the corporate settlement or the resolution documents whether Honeywell had both implemented a compliance program to the satisfaction of the Department of Justice and tested it. I found no language on the testing component. So that. No, I, I agree know, with you. Uh, yeah, no, I, agree. I, know, I didn't
1: see that. Nope. And I looked for that as well. I didn't see either mentioned one way or the other. So I wondered about that. But they did talk about their enhancement of their anti-corruption program, getting rid of third-party representatives in various areas, and sort of their remediation efforts. It all sounded great on paper, but I don't know if it was actually tested. So that's a good point. On the other hand, I thought it was it was a pretty good, pretty large settlement, $160 million given the conduct. But it was, it was a large contract. The contract, they ended up not completing it, but still, they made a lot of profits, illegal profits from this as well. So it's an interesting case. I think we're going to see more Honeywells, ABBs, Stericycles. I wouldn't predict yet another Glencore, but I think we're going to see more of those coming in the next year. And I wanted to switch because I know we've been on for a little bit, but I want to definitely address these issues with you, Tom, which are the changes that occurred in the DOJ corporate enforcement policy. And these are really significant, in my view. We have seen yet another heightened expectation in the areas of compliance. But just to set the stage a little bit, and then we can chew on some of these issues, the Lisa Monaco memorandum that came out was specifically applies to all white-collar enforcement and not just FCPA. But it talked about the decline in white-collar prosecutions that has occurred over the last 10 years. The increase now, we're seeing yet another increase in FBI agents and resources dedicated to not only the FCPA, but white-collar crime, but they're also embedding agents with prosecutors in the same offices, which I think is a great idea. We're also seeing more focus on export controls and trade sanctions, given the Russia sanctions issue as well. But from the compliance perspective, I think it's beyond sort of their need to say, but yet they said it again and again, is that you will do better if you have an effective compliance program when you cross the threshold into DOJ to provide a voluntary disclosure. And I think they were trying to say in any and every way they can, we expect you to put together an effective compliance program. We've told you how to do it. We've given you guidance. We don't want to hear financial excuses like we couldn't afford $50,000 $50, for it or 100000 for an automated tool of some sort. That's just not going to cut it. But just to remind everybody then they this was the framework within which they started to go at this and remind everybody again, the three elements needed are voluntary disclosure, full cooperation, timely and appropriate re- remediation, and then you get a presumption of declination. And like we said, you can get 25 to even 50% off even if you voluntarily disclose and you have an aggravating circumstance, which could be being a recidivist, pervasive conduct, or a large amount of bribes or senior executives involvement. Now. The thing that happened here, Tom, you mentioned one issue, and we can talk about that in a minute, but I also wanted to get your thoughts on this. To me, the big mention, the big ramp up here is that the new compliance program expectation is that now we have to have compliance focus on compensation programs. In other words, we want to reward compliance and penalize individuals who commit misconduct. What is If you can describe that and what you thought about DOJ's approach here and what do you think this means for compliance programs in general going forward?
0: Mike, I dubbed the Monaco memo and the Monaco Doctrine as putting the heat on compliance. And I think you're absolutely right that the doctrine really wants compliance programs to up their game and they want corporations to fund and put resources in compliance, but let me start with the investigation because here I'm talking to people like you. I think you guys are under a huge increase. in Certainly in-house compliance officers have a big part of investigations, starting with your hotline, starting with triage, getting it to the right person, whether it's the general counsel picking up the phone and calling you or handling it internally themselves, but it has to be done quickly. It has to be done efficiently. Because someone's going to have to make a decision, should we self-disclose? And then if you make that decision, then someone like you is going to have to go out and get those documents like they did in ABB and make the decision when to turn them over to the Department of Justice. Do you counsel with your client? Do you figure out your strategy? Do you sit down and have thoughtful reflection on what it all means in the big picture, Or do you turn it over? I don't pretend to know the answers to those, but I do know that's a difficult question. Because the department has said that is part of the equation that we will look at now in considering whether to give you full credit under the corporate enforcement policy. So a lot more pressure. The DOJ wants corporate compliance programs incentivized appropriately. And companies, I don't think, spend enough time thinking about that. How do we incentivize our compliance program, whether it's a discretionary bonus at the end of the year or a by promotion or other activities? But equally, they want disincentives or punishment for those who violate internal controls, for those who violate the FCPA, for those who violate company policy and procedures. They specifically talked about clawbacks for senior executives, and the DOJ wants companies to start taking back money. From executives who made money through bribery and corruption. I think a lot more pressure on compliance programs around incentives and disincentives. We haven't even got to the ephemeral messaging discussion in the Monaco memo, but more pressure on compliance programs to capture messaging, even third party apps. How are you going to do that? And I think really the heat is on compliance. And The uh, Department of Justice made clear you will be, your compliance program will be assessed at two points. Number one, when the violation occurred, and number two, when the resolution occurs. And if you have a substandard program for some of the reasons you articulated, we couldn't spend $50,000 to upgrade our ERP system so that all of the invoices talk to each other in compliance and oversight, that's not going to cut it. And yes, you can extraordinarily upgrade those systems, but that's really not how you want to do business. Changing engines at going 40,000 miles an hour or 4,000 miles an hour at 40,000 feet in the air is not how you want to try to do this if you find yourself in the middle of it. It really puts pressure on compliance programs. It puts pressure on investigations. It puts pressure on outside counsel who are involved in investigations. It puts pressure on boards of directors to make the right decision. Because if you don't self-disclose, you've thrown away potentially an opportunity to generate goodwill and trust. You've certainly thrown away a 25% or more discount off of your fine and penalty, perhaps leading up to a declination and it's going to make that decision, which I think is one of the hardest ones a corporation can make in conjunction with their counsel, even harder. I think there's a lot in here that puts pressure on compliance, and I think the DOJ
1: has turned the heat up. I think what I find really interesting is right around the same time the SEC came out with rules for clawbacks for senior executives from financial misreporting. And it's almost like strict liability. If there's a restatement in the SEC rules, the money gets taken back. And you have to have a process and a procedure. It took 10 years for them to implement those rules, by the way, from Dodd-Frank. They were directed 10 years ago. But here, to me, this is the equivalent for corporate compliance programs. Now, we always talk about cooperation within the organization, How about sitting down with HR and your senior executive staff and saying, okay, what kind of compensation program are we going to have? If Mike engages in misconduct, he should lose a clawback and he should lose a bonus. But what if he has a deferred stock vesting program or whatever, where after certain years I get a certain amount of vested stock? That has to be looked at. How can we create and how do we rewrite these programs now to disincentivize misconduct and then what are we providing on the other side? What's the carrot to beyond just saying, okay, it's one element of your evaluation every year. to Make sure you have complied with all ethics and compliance requirements. I think this raises it to a new level. Look, we saw in one case, and you'll remember this case, Novartis in the space of two weeks settled a $750 million foreign bribery. Case with a $750 million domestic bribery case of AKS, anti-kickback. So what did Novartis do? They said to all senior executives, none of you are going to get a bonus unless you meet these compliance requirements. And is that where we're heading? That, in other words, we're going to have to say to everybody, you, we've got to force you to do this or else you're going to lose all these benefits. And it seems to me like DOJ has opened the door to asking these tough questions. How far are we going to go in this area? But it seems to me like we've never really dug down, no compliance program that I've ever seen has really dug down and managed and examined all the risks that are created by incentive and disincentive programs. We have the famous case example of Wells Fargo and the woman who ran off with all the money from that ridiculous incentive program or sales program that required eight accounts for every one customer that we have at Wells Fargo. That woman ended up making tons and tons of bonus money. They clawed back some of it. But under this standard now, Tom, I think DOJ is going to look at the program and say, not only what did you write down, but what did you take back? How did you execute this program? And I think this raises a whole new level where, and you have been a strong proponent from the beginning of that compliance needs a seat at the senior executive table. Now they certainly do. If we're going to have them involved in compensation systems for not only senior executives, but middle level management and how we we craft these. So this is what I mean. To me, this was the game changing aspect of the Monaco memo to me. And it says to compliance, don't come in here with just your old rinky dink punishment disincentive program. We want to see something new. And we're waiting on some guidance, I think additional guidance that the criminal division was supposed to put out. And I hope we see that soon in this year, but that's going to be interesting to me.
0: The We have touched on this topic, the next topic I'd like to raise, Mike, several times during this recording, and that's CCO yep. certification. This was announced by the Department of Justice in the spring. Kenneth Polite, formerly or re-articulated it at Compliance Week 2022 conference, and now we have it enshrined in every settlement agreement since the Monaco memo. Kenneth Polite has said the desire or the goal of the DOJ is to empower the CCO to have the resources, both monetary and headcount, that they need. But many CCOs are worried that they will now be personally liable or certifying something if there's a compliance failure. I recognize this is going to be a very limited number of CCOs we're going to have to certify because it's CCOs whose companies have gone through a FCPA enforcement action. But this is a pretty big change. And if I'm the Glencore CCO, I'm not sure I want to have to certify. Maybe they have great confidence in their program, which you are going to be your tail on the line. So what are your thoughts,
1: that? You're sitting in, let's say, London as the chief compliance officer for Glencore, and now you're suddenly on the hook for the compliance program that's now operating in the DRC. And if I were advising you as your lawyer before you assign that certification, I would think you have to do a certain amount of level of due diligence. And because you could be prosecuted, I'm not saying you will be, I I was, I had the benefit of interviewing David Last at a meeting, who's the head of the FCPA unit, and he tried to reassure everybody by saying, look, we're not out to get you. We're not out. This is not a game of gotcha. But then the argument that we heard back from Kenneth Polite was, look, we're looking at this as a means to elevate your status within the organization, to elevate the status of the chief compliance officer. And I see it a little bit more as a two-edged sword. I don't see people being prosecuted very easily. I think the department knows that they that it would have to be a situation of really egregious conduct or misrepresentation. But nonetheless, it does put a burden and a worry on top of the compliance professional who's already has enough risks as as we know in terms of their job. And I just wonder, is this the right mechanism to do it? In practice, I think it's going to be a lot less significant because it only applies to these few situations. But we know, both of us know quite well, Natalia, who's now at eight, And if I were her before she has to sign this certification at the end of the monitor. At the end of the deep, I, I think long and hard about it to make sure that my representation is done in good faith. To see, yep. That's a- All right, Tom. I think we've come to the end. This is thank you. This has been just terrific. But 2023 is going to be an interesting year, and uh, hopefully, I can get you back maybe halfway through for a mid-year review to see where we are, and we can count up the cases then and point out what we think is. Been interesting. A couple of things I wanted to plug for Tom as my good friend and colleague. Number one, he is now the best-selling child compliance officer, author. Tom, congratulations on your new kid's book on being, and if you haven't, it, it'd be great to see it. The, compli- the chief compliance officer. There it is. Being a compliance officer is awesome by Tom Fox. I think the book is terrific. And we do look forward to your book, coming out on the review of 2022. When do you expect that out, Tom? And where can people find it? And Maybe we can get a link for the show notes. I'm not sure
0: we'll have it ready by the time this pod posts, Mike, but I'll send you the link for being a compliance okay. officer. It's awesome. That is available on Amazon. 2022, the year in FCPA, will also be available on Amazon. And in May, LexisNexis will be publishing My Compliance Handbook, 4th Edition. So that will be out with LexisNexis. Once again, the best single author volume on design, creation, and implementation of a best practice compliance program. So I continue to write, continue to podcast, and...
1: Well, to be part of the Compliance Podcast Network, it's always an honor for that. And, Tom, it's always great to talk with you. But uh, congratulations, by the way. I did not know you had a new handbook coming out. I can tell you from the past handbooks, they're invaluable, the best, and we will be promoting it on our blog. And then we'll certainly get you on to talk about that when that comes out because I think we need to catch up on that issue as well. Oh, and if somebody wants to email you, Tom, besides reading all your books, they can also contact you, how.
0: So you can contact me via email, foxlaw.com. I'm on LinkedIn, Thomas R. Fox. The Compliance Podcast Network is compliancepodcastnetwork.net. So check out all of those resources, podcasts and blogs. I'd love to connect with you if I'm not already connected with you. And if you have any questions or want to chat, connect with me on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. Fantastic. Thank you,
1: Tom. All the best, everybody.
0: Thank you, again. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report, where we reported on the LRN acquisition of compliance learning from Thomson Reuters. You can go to the firm's website that we've linked to in the show notes to find out more and how this acquisition will really position LRN going forward. I hope you will join me in our next episode, where we begin a special two part series with the principles of the Texas Hill Country Advisors on the FTX scandal, where we look at it from a banking risk management perspective and from an investor due diligence perspective. I know you enjoy the next two episodes of the FCPA Compliance Report.